HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meetin' 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with, like, paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's guest is in studio with me all the way from New York's Hudson Valley, um, which is a very special place for me where I grew up and where my family still is. So Kathleen Finley is the president of Glenwood, a nonprofit farm and center that is renowned in the region and nationally for its work related to regenerative agriculture, farmer training, and building regional food systems. Kathleen, thanks for being here. Such a pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, and where in, what's the exact town where Glenwood is? The closest town is Cold Spring, New York, Okay, and but we work throughout the Hudson Valley, so from New York City to Albany, both sides of the river. Got it. <laughs> it's a little, a little bit far from where I, I grew up on the other side of the river. Oh, nice. In Orange County, so not too close, but... Great you know, county. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the same um, agricultural landscape kind of throughout the region. So... Glenwood's mission is to ensure the Hudson Valley is a region defined by food where farming thrives. I read that and I just, I really liked it. So I thought I would start there. Um, It's a nonprofit, a training center, also a farm, right? Mm -hmm. So can you paint us a picture of what it actually looks like? What's happening on a daily basis and how do all those different elements come together to serve that mission? Yeah. So uh, the 
the purpose of the organization is really to foster that regional food system in the Hudson Valley. Mm. We're lucky because we have a great market in the city and throughout the valley um, and a long heritage of farming, as you know, from your roots there. And also a, a, a history of land conservation, which increasingly is interested in protecting working landscapes as well as just natural landscapes. So what we uh, are doing is training new entry farmers. Mm -hmm. Then we use our headquarters near Cold Spring as a sort of campus, as a learning place where people who are food and farming professionals but others can come and learn how they can support regional food. And then we spend a lot of time building coalitions. And what I mean by that is bringing together groups of food and farming professionals that are usually challenged or see the opportunity in one particular sector. Mm-hmm. And we tend to work with those coalitions over many years, actually. So on any given day at Glenwood, it, on site, there's, um, you know, there could be a tractor workshop, there could be <laughs> apprentices out on the field, there could be a business class for farmers, there could be a cooking demo, there could be a farm dinner, um, a group of CSA farmers coming together, and then there's staff out in the Hudson Valley working with food and farming professionals um, on that given day as well. Yeah, and it's and it's a productive farm throughout all that, right? The, yeah. yeah, so yeah. we have a, a vegetable-based production operation and a pasture-based livestock operation, okay. and the purpose of the farm is to train farmers. Got it. So... Um, we do. We have CSA sales for our vegetables mm-hmm. and our meat, and um, we sell meat on farm, and we donate a lot of our production. But the, every decision on the farm is made to optimize the training that those apprentices receive. Got it. So, and was it always like that? How did it get started? Because I think it's been around for about 20 years, right? Yeah, it's been around for a long time. It was um, first started with a desire to think about what is at the heart of rural landscapes, rural communities. How can we ensure especially communities that are close to such a large metropolitan center like New York City. Mm. How can we make sure that the, that the culture and the landscapes of these places perseveres? Um, and they quickly learned that agriculture was kind of at the heart of those efforts. Yeah. So um, it was a little bit broader and engaged regional efforts uh, in Europe and all over the world in this quest to make sure that those rural communities really stay, you know, vibrant. Um, and that, and then it evolved to focus more on food and farming in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. It's, I mean, the Hudson Valley is such a unique, special place when it comes to agriculture, right? I mean, you know, you, you said the word vibrant and, and I think about it now and I don't live there. I haven't lived there in a very long time, but it's, I mean, it's got the most fertile soil, access to major markets in the city. It's just seems like it's always been this beautiful place of small, diversified farms, um, strong food culture. Do, do you feel like that is true right now? And like, has it changed at all over, over the years? Is it getting stronger or is it? I, I think it's true. And then I think what happens, um, what happened in many rural regions that have those kinds of farms, those smaller farms, 
is because of the industrial food system, it's just harder for those farms mm-hmm. to, to make it. Um, especially in places like the Hudson Valley where land value is quite high. So it's right. expensive to, to own land to farm. And, um, and you know, as, che- as, as that commodified food becomes cheaper, it's harder for those farmers to be able to compete in those markets. But what we're seeing now mm-hmm. is a real resurgence and desire for those types of farms in our region. So it's a little bit of a renaissance mm. happening in the Hudson Valley right now, in my view. Um, not that things are like they were. They're different. Yeah. Like dairy is no longer right. a viable sector in, in the way that it was. Um, but those farms still have the infrastructure and the landscapes that are great, you know, pasture-based meat farms, for example. Yeah. So... Um, what, that's why it's so great to be working on this issue in the Hudson Valley is because it's there. There's enough there there that you can really make it sing agriculturally, mm. especially um, with all the efforts that are happening to build a healthier, more sane food system. I mm-hmm. think the Hudson Valley is, is in a great position to do that. Right. And you mentioned, you know, one of the challenges is, is um, high land prices. I mean, because you're so close to New York City. Um, in terms of the young and beginning farmers that you're training, what are some of the other challenges that you hear the most about from them in terms of just getting started and building viable farm businesses? Yeah, I mean, cost is yeah. is, is a big one. Um, we started a few years ago a farm business incubator program where we help farm businesses in their first five years of launching. Okay. And so we've learned a lot about what's challenging those new entry farm businesses. Um, and we try to, to meet those needs. Mm-hmm. Certainly it costs, although there's been some great interventions that have helped, like land trusts, easing land that can still be farmed. So the value, the development rights are bought, basically, making it more affordable for a farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, some other interesting capital and financial mechanisms that are uh, geared toward uh, helping get people on the land. Right. And a lot of what we're hearing and responding to from those farm businesses isn't actually um, operational. It's more the soft stuff like business skills, human resources, Mm. communication, how, staffing, how we structure governance, those are the um, hard-to-find resources yeah. that we are um, happily happily providing to those new entry farmers. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's because, you know, you, you set out to do something. It's like, you want a farm, and you don't realize you have to be HR. You have to be all those other things, yeah. right, that yeah. come along with Yeah, just, we ask a lot of our farmers. Yeah. Yeah, we really I do. Guess, any business, but then farming is so yeah. different because you have to be outside doing this. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the, the programs um, Glenwood has. Um, I'm really interested in, you were talking a little bit about how you work with coalitions a lot. And I noticed that even just on your website, like there's all these different coalitions running. Um, I, w- I want to talk about the CSA coalition. Um, how, how does that work, first of all? Yeah, all of our coalitions start with getting a group of you know food and farming professionals producers together with a shared challenge so that csa farms 
um, we started talking to CSA farms and learning from other parts of the country where CSA farms have come together in a region, specifically uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. There was a strong CSA coalition that we had heard about and um, we thought, well, wonder if, if the CSA farmers here would benefit from coming together with their peers. And that work has been proven successful in some of our other efforts, like with cider makers. And so we started talking, having conversations with them and, and asking, what do you need as a CSA farm? And what we heard um, right off the bat is, just as you were saying, you know, it's hard for a small farm. Mm. Usually um, it's one or two or three farmers on a, on a piece of land. They're yeah. out there a lot. They're doing a lot of things. So to come up with a marketing plan and have a budget for advertising or getting new customers mm-hmm. is just really challenging. So one of the things that we were able to do right away is, is a couple things. One was to pull together um, you know, simply a website. So instead of one farm trying to reach a lot of people with just their website, right. we now have all of the coalition farmers, over 100 of them, on HudsonValleyCSA.org. So if you live in the Hudson Valley, you, you can, can go, go to that website. You can say, oh, which one's closest to me and see yeah. a whole list of them. Exactly. Okay. And you can filter by like just vegetables or if you want mm. fruit or if you want meat or, you know, so you can kind of pick your own, so mm-hmm. to speak. And um, and that was a, you know, a way to reach audiences that no one farm could really do. So that was kind of a, a simple intervention. The CSA farmers also wanted to know, um, what do our customers want? What's the market like? Do, do, mm. Are there more customers that we're not reaching? Um, who are they? How do we get them? So we were able to use funds that we raised to hire some market, some market researchers to do that research for all, again, benefiting all the farms. Um, and that, those findings were really interesting. And now we've taken those findings and then turned that into programming for the coalition. Huh. What, can you share some of those findings? Oh, I'm yeah. so curious. Um, no one knows what a CSA is. <laughs> That's the number one finding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, we're going to get into the nitty gritty. And I was like, what's a CSA? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so actually, the marketing campaign makes fun of the acronym uh. um, CSA. So we came up with this thing where you can, you know, we say consume something awesome or cut <laughs> spring cute. asparagus or what does CSA mean to you? You know, right. sort of like there's a very small percentage that actually know the acronym or the shorthand of that. And all of those folks in all of our communities who, um, who might want access to that kind of subscription model just don't even know about it. And yeah. CSA just kind of passes them by and they're not takes a while to explain it. It's an awful name, actually. Um, yeah, it is. Now that you... Yeah, say so that was one. And, and uh, the other big takeaway was once you explained what a CSA is to folks who didn't know what it was, they were really interested. Mm. So I think that um, we went into it with a anecdotal assumption that the market's saturated. Or yeah, well, that's what I think people have been saying. That's sort of like in the air. Yeah. and It's not what we found. Hmm. We, we found, in fact, that there's lots of untapped folks who either don't know what a CSA is, haven't heard of it, or just aren't getting the information. Um, so then that really 
helped us strategize about where that information is going in our communities. Right. Um, and for the CSA farmers that are part of the coalition, it was really important to them to, to reach their local communities. You know, so part of the irony is that conversations about CSA are happening in the city, so drops off, drop-offs in the city are kind of popular, but mm. in, our, in our more rural communities, the word wasn't getting out. So, um, you know, we really are striving to help our local communities in the Hudson Valley know the benefits of a subscription-based farm model. Yeah. I'm curious, um, now that we're talking about CSAs, what you're seeing in terms of farmers markets. I think there's a a similar kind of like conversation happening in the past year or couple years where people are saying the farmers market, um, farmers markets are saturated, that there's, you know, maybe too many and farmers aren't um, getting, aren't making as much money at the markets and it's not as a good use of their time. Like how, how, are the farmers you work with, are they mostly selling at markets? And, and what are you finding in that area? Some of the farmers we work with sell at market for sure. Um, some choose not to because it is not a cost. It isn't a money maker for them, frankly. It takes mm. a lot of labor to set up at a market. You're not always sure how much you're going to sell, etc. It really depends on the market, mm-hmm. on how many people are coming to the market. Um, but we haven't done the research on markets in the Hudson Valley. Like that's another yeah. coalition I would love to build is market managers. There's no coalition of market managers. Mm. So what works in, you know, New Paltz um, may not be shared with what what is working in Peak Skills. Right. So those people aren't necessarily coming together and sharing best practices and learning from each other in the way ideally that we would love to see. Um, and we haven't done the research that we were able to do with CSAs. My sense is it's similar. It's not about the market being saturated. It's about who are we getting to those markets and how are we getting them there? Mm-hmm. How are we, how, how, what, what's the experience life want that, like once they are there? I mean, I think markets are such a great, wonderful asset to any community. Um, but there, there are good markets and there are markets that could be better. And we need to know what those things are in order to... Um, get that great food to our communities. Absolutely. Um, So we're going to take a quick break. Um, We'll be right back with more with Kathleen from Glenwood. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Forever Cheese sources a curated collection of unique cheeses and specialty foods from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. They have pioneered numerous important products that are now integral to today's market, including many under their brand Matika. Learn more at forevercheese.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm here with Kathleen Finley from Glenwood Farm. So... Before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, different ways that farmers uh, you work with get their fresh food to people, right? Uh, CSAs, markets, and um, I, I want to talk a little bit about this new program that I saw you're running called CSA is a Snap, which, by the way, is a very clever uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> name. And thank Liz Corey for that, <laughs> one of our staff members. Amazing. Um, so, you know, I wanted, I actually just worked on a story for um, this publication called Food Friend on farmer's market incentives for 
um, food insecure individuals who qualify for SNAP. And I hadn't realized before doing that that so many markets um, accept SNAP benefits and also um, have programs where they make SNAP benefits worth more money for um, SNAP users. And it was really exciting to, to hear all that happening. But I've never heard about um, SNAP benefits being applied to CSA memberships. Yeah. So, so tell me about um, how did this program come about? Sure. So it couldn't have happened without the coalition that we were just talking oh, about. Okay. For, so that's one of the examples of why coalition is so awesome because we, you know, we heard from the farmers that they wanted to serve their communities and especially serve folks that um, might have a hard time affording the food that they were producing. Mm-hmm. So um, with that coalition, we were able to apply for some federal funds. Um, the program is called Gus Snip. It's named after Gus Schumacher, mm-hmm. and that's personally great because he was one of my mentors, and we lost him a couple of years ago. So um, the funding, what the funding will allow us to do is it, it's a pilot. So to my knowledge, this mechanism hasn't been tried nationally okay. yet. And uh, we're going to start small this coming season and and work out some of the kinks and then hopefully be able to roll it out more nationally. But it's a very simple mechanism. Essentially, we create a loan fund. We pay the farmer up front so they still get the money when they need it. Mm. And then the SNAP or WIC benefits are redeemed weekly or biweekly and serve to replenish the Go back into the fund. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, that's what I was... My first question was going to be, what about the upfront cost, right? Because that's not how benefits work. No. So it's a really simple and elegant solution. Um, We're subsidizing those those subscriptions. So the fund will kind of deplete and we'll, we'll raise money to replenish it fully. But... Um, it's really setting up that mechanism to be able to, to exactly pay the farmer up front and then be able to um, serve those, those assistance dollars that are, that are only given um, either weekly or biweekly or monthly. So very excited about that, especially excited because of a couple reasons. One is the subscription model is affordable it's more affordable than a market it's on par with a grocery store it's it is an affordable way to get really fresh healthy food and the health outcomes of csa subscription are really significant so a recent study out of the university of kentucky for example showed that after just one season doctor visits and co-payments were reduced by about half um, so you're, you're, because you're eating such a plant-based diet, if you're subscribing to a CSA mm-hmm. and a real spectrum and variety, right? variety just, is one of yeah. those things people forget about when it yeah. comes to healthy eating. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, I have a health background, so I'm really excited mm. about both the, the ability to, um, increase food access in our communities and also just, um, be curious to see how the health outcomes were. Yeah. Mm. So how are you going to get the word out to people who qualify um, for this program? I mean, we were just talking about how most people don't even know what a CSA is, and now you're talking about reaching communities where people probably haven't tried them before. Yeah. Right? So we're working, again, we're kind of starting small with a Mm -hmm. few farms and uh, a few subscription farms, and then we're working with local community centers. And those are are different kinds of community centers, depending on the community, but they could be 
churches, food assistance centers, healthcare centers, lots of different ways that we're getting the word out through those um, sort of really on the ground community based organizations. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah. <laughs> looking forward to hearing more about how it goes. Yeah, and, thanks. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, that, you know, that I had never heard about studies that actually looked at health outcomes of CSA subscribers. I'm definitely going to look that up because that's such an interesting um, way to approach even looking at diet, right? Like we're always saying like, oh, well, people who eat this kind of diet, and it's like, that's not necessarily a kind of diet. It's just you're saying every week I'm going to have this fresh variety of vegetables available to me, right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, enough to change how you eat. Yeah. It's, and it's exciting also because, you know, there's a lot of food is medicine programs out there. Um, and sometimes they don't always close the loop to support regional food. And, you know, they can be agnostic about where the food 100%. comes from. Mm-hmm. And so... This way, it's it is really healthy, but it's also, you know, creating those um, that food and farming system that we want to see um, in our region and in regions across the country. Right. So, you are an organization that is inherently focused on your region, right, the Hudson Valley. Um, but you're visiting DC right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which makes me think you're, you're paying attention to national policy, maybe. Um, but so. What are you working on that um, applies at a national level? How, how are you taking the work at Glenwood and applying it to sort of the bigger picture uh, nationally in agriculture? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're in, I was going to say cahoots, and then I was like, <laughs> does anyone even say that word I like anymore? It. I don't even know what it means. Or, um, but anyway, we work closely with other organizations that are also, and other people, and other institutions that are trying to build regional food systems in their area, in the United States, and even internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm constantly in conversation, or, and our staff are constantly in conversation with them. What are you learning? What are you challenged? What mistakes have you made? How can we all learn together? And so we're part of a lot of um, larger groups that are coming together and sharing what we're doing in the Hudson Valley with Mm -hmm. others. So that's one obvious way. Um, We also, in all of our programming, in all of our work, we're identifying the need to address climate and um, create this food system with real climate resilience. And that's a national conversation that we're a part of. Right. Um, really looking at soils and, and carbon sequestration. And, and that's, um, uh, there's just been such a resurgence of research in that area that's happening at all, all over the place. So we're working on that nationally. And then another focus of ours has been to recognize and celebrate and foster the, the leadership of women in sustainable food and agriculture. Mm. Um, so we are convening later in the spring a group of, um, of, of women leaders from around the country to come together and build community and help resource them to, to go back to their regions and do what they do. But that's been, um, that's just been really interesting for me because in the environmental movement in general, uh, it's, it's mostly, the, the leadership is mostly male, hmm. but in the sustainable food and farming sector, um, there's a lot of female leadership and, mm. and that's a real, that's something to really celebrate and highlight. So that's been 
really great. The apprentice cohort we have coming up is all female at Glenwood this season for the first time. So that's really exciting. Intentionally or that no, just happened? just happened. Huh. Yeah, wow. the best of the best. <laughs> of course. <Yeah. laughs> and the, the women that you were just talking about that you're bringing um, to Glenwood nationally, like how did they, how did you recruit them? We're doing it right now. Oh, so okay. we're in the midst of, but it's the first, um, it's the first gathering that we're doing and, you know, we, we started with this enormous list. And we're just, um, we're trying to bring folks a, a, a div- as diverse a group as we can, meaning they're from different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. They're kind of in, in approaching the, the good food movement in kind of different ways. Um, they're, you know, they're different ages and have different backgrounds culturally. So we just, it's a good mix. And um, I, I hope to do it often. This will be the first one that we're doing um, in this way at Glenwood. So yeah, first of many. Absolutely. So I want to ask you kind of this big picture question, which is, you know, Glenwood is this... Um, center that's been around a long time that is doing this work on regional food and I talked a little bit in the beginning of the show about how the Hudson Valley feels very unique to me um, in a lot of ways and I think so I, I, I really personally see regional food systems as a solution to so many of the issues we see in the industrial food system, right? It's like you can kind of go down the list and be like labor rights and climate change and you can kind of hit them all and it just seems so obvious to me. But a lot of people, I think when you talk about local food, regional food, you come up against this perception that it's not, it's only possible in certain places like Mm -hmm. the Hudson Valley, um, close to big population centers. Um, You know, I I think about, I was just in Iowa and I, I did have this thought like, would it be possible to sort of do this, do something like this here where, you know, 12 people are living over here and then you have to drive like many miles and a few people are living over here. I just, I would love your kind of big picture thoughts on like, is it possible to really re-regionalize, I guess, mm-hmm. the food system? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I figured you'd I, say that. I think but. that um, it doesn't mean that there's little huts and valleys all over okay. the, the country. I mean, obviously there are places where there's less people mm-hmm. and there's more land and that's going to look very different than somewhere that's more populated and has smaller, tra- you know, tracts of land. But um, there's such a better reality possible than mile upon mile of corn and soy. And, and that image that you probably experienced mm-hmm. where we're just grow using some of the best soil on in our country to grow these commodities that aren't really even feeding us as humans that can be dramatically different it might not it might it would look very different than the Hudson Valley yeah um, and we we might find that we want to grow bigger crops in those kinds of areas but the also, the sovereignty can change, like how um, that those the the power structure of what's dictating the use of those lands. It's just pretty messed up. So yeah. there's not a lot of say from the eaters about how that 
you know, w what's possible there. So I think all of that is part of a regional food system, a decentralized, what we're talking about really is a decentralized food system. Mm -hmm. um, and that is inherently more democratic. It's inherently more diverse. Um, it is, it, it's a different structure. So I, I don't know that it all looks like the Hudson Valley and what we're doing there is so determined by, you know, our physical reality in the Hudson Valley, even California, you know, we have such a different, just topographical and right. physical, like the water alone, you know, if you just think about water, we can't farm those two regions the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, but they could look a lot better than they do now. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the most important steps you think um, we need to take on a national level to kind of start to make those changes, to start to um, move towards the kind of vision you're describing? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we need a national food policy, period. Um, you know, I don't think food gets, food and agriculture gets its due recognition on a, on a national or even many times on a, on a state by state political forum. It is fundamental to our health and our livelihood. Like you said, it kind of ticks all the mm -hmm. boxes and, um, we need to, a, start having that conversation a lot more and then be able to intelligently write policy that's going to foster what I just kind of outlined. A, a food system that is actually created in order to benefit human health and well-being mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of what we're doing now, which is benefiting a, a bottom line for somebody. Create somewhere. profit and right. then, yeah, right. people kind of have to figure out how to be healthy if they can. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's going to take policy, because in this system right now, what we're doing and what we're advocating for, and we're using philanthropic dollars, we're using donors' dollars to create that change in one region as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But it's going to stop there unless there's like a, a more recognition from a national policy level. And that's going to take funds and resources and time and energy and talent and intellect and motivation. Um, beyond what we're able to do as, as nonprofits. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see some intelligent policy designed to have a healthy food system. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen, for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Lisa. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.